Chapter 21, Part 2 Hope in Ramadi Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Patroquin, Dean, and the Tribes Though McFarland and 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division did not realize it in midsummer 2006, their problem in generating reliable ISF would be solved by what seemed at the time to be a completely separate initiative, tribal outreach. Immediately after arriving in Ramadi, McFarland had tasked his civil affairs officer, Captain Travis Patroquin, with learning as much as possible about the Ramadi area tribes. The 32-year-old Patroquin was the right choice for the job. An unusual officer, he had served as an enlisted soldier and had an interest in foreign cultures and aptitude for languages that had served him well as he accompanied special forces missions in Afghanistan. Earlier in his army career, he had taken an Arabic immersion course in Jordan and had deployed to Kuwait with special forces units. In Nineveh, MacFarland had used Patrick Quinn as a liaison to local leaders, and the young captain had surprised the officers of the 3rd Iraqi Division when he rose at a luncheon to inform them, in Arabic, that he looked forward to working with them. He had used his four months in Tel Afar to learn the Iraqi dialect, eventually speaking it well enough that, upon first meeting Patrick Quinn, a stunned Sheikh Sattar of the Al-Burisha tribe thought he must be speaking to an Iraqi in an American officer's uniform. Satar and other sheikhs were equally stunned by the novelty of an American officer who was fully versed in their cultural norms of conversation and socialization. Because of his personality and ability to converse in Arabic, Patroquin immediately gained Satar's trust and became MacFarlane's primary interlocutor with the tribes, a weighty responsibility for a captain, but one that Patroquin relished. Along with Patroquin, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Dean, commander of 1st Battalion, 35th Armored Regiment, a unit that had been called forward to Ramadi after sitting in Kuwait for six months, also began meeting with local sheikhs and securing their support for 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's planned police recruitment drives. The first drive on July 4th immediately came under indirect fire, but succeeded in enlisting 80 candidates, and much to Dean's satisfaction, recruitment steadily grew thereafter. Dean's outreach paid particular dividends as he developed a relationship through the summer of 2006 with Ahmed Abu Risha and his elder brother Abdul Sattar, the leader of the Abu Risha tribe. Dean was the first coalition commander to realize Sattar's potential influence in Anbar and Baghdad. The Abu Risha long had been active against AQI but had been overlooked in the coalition's Sunni engagement efforts because of the tribe's supposed lower-tier status within Anbar's large Dulaim confederation. Sattar's father, Sheikh Kamis Bizia, had been friendly with the coalition following the invasion, but AQI murdered him on November 6, 2004 at the outset of Operation Al-Fajr for cooperating with U.S. forces. With his father dead and his eldest brother Abdullah Bizia slain by AQI in August 2004, Abdul Sattar had become the head of the tribe, while another brother, Sheikh Bezia, had become Anbar Province's deputy police chief after serving as a police commander in Ramadi. As one of the few surviving senior members of the ill-fated Anbar People's Committee, Sattar was well known throughout the tribal system. It also was likely the coalition underestimated his influence because the Albu Risha's connections beyond Ramadi were not well known. The previous Iraqi Minister of Defense, Sadun Dulaimi, was a member of Sattar's tribe, 
and Sattar's brother Ahmed had served as a liaison between Dulaimi and the Albu Mahal sheikhs who formed the Desert Protectors in Al-Qa'im in 2005. It was with Dulaimi's support, via Ahmed Abu Risha, that Sheikh Saba and the Albu Mahal had been able to arm the Desert Protectors. Sattar also had formed a partnership with one-time insurgent leader Mohammed Mahmoud Latif to seek a political solution to the violence racking Anbar, and both were determined not to allow a repeat of the defeat of the Anbar People's Committee. The lines between the tribes and the insurgency were often hazy, and it was fortuitous for the coalition that the flexible Dean and Patriquin were on hand to navigate these complex ties as Sattar's influence grew during the summer and fall of 2006. 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division, and AQI collide. Two days before the successful July 4th police recruiting drive, Casey visited Ramadi and came away pleased with what he saw in McFarland's first month in the city. The 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division had killed 170 insurgents and was killing between 5 and 10 enemies per day, McFarland reported, and to coincide with the recruiting drive, the brigade had seized the Ramadi hospital that AQI was using as a headquarters because of its dominant height within the city. But the brigade commander also wanted to change the signals Ramadi residents were picking up from the coalition. McFarland found it unsurprising that Anbaris declined to take risks to oppose AQI when the coalition continued to emphasize American withdrawal. In McFarland's view, it was important to communicate that the coalition was establishing a presence in the city, that the insurgents would be killed, and that the Americans were there to stay, all themes that ran against MNFI's message. Throughout July, as 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division expanded its presence, AQI prepared to retaliate. On July 24th, approximately 200 insurgents simultaneously attacked 20 different Iraqi and coalition locations in and around the city, intending to destroy the police stations located near the North-South Bridge on the Euphrates River and in the peripheral tribal region, but McFarland's troops and Iraqi police forces repelled the attacks. Three days later, AQI leaders Abu Salih al-Saudi, Abu Abdallah al-Saudi, and 14 other AQI fighters were killed when coalition aircraft struck a meeting of the group's leadership north of Ramadi, capping a costly two-week period for AQI in which the group lost an estimated 65 killed, and many AQI members were forced to seek refuge in the city's Tamim district. As 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's outposts and operations began to restrict AQI's movement, the group changed tactics instead using mortar and IED attacks against Ramadi's main coalition bases and the government center. On August 2nd, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division troops seized Anbar University, a longtime hotbed of insurgent activity where it was estimated up to 30% of the students were involved with the insurgency, and a car bomb construction site was located on the university grounds. By August 10th, McFarland had established two additional combat outposts in the city, and the total of local police recruited in June and July had risen to 355, almost three times the number of police on duty when 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division had arrived. The tide was beginning to turn. The Devlin Report Throughout August, McFarland's troops continued to enjoy tactical successes while Dean and Patriquin expanded their cooperation with the increasingly influential Sheikh Sattar, who had begun organizing a new assembly of tribal sheikhs to oppose AQI. 
At 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's higher headquarters, however, Multinational Force West, or MNFW, officials had their reservations about the brigade's tribal outreach and about the coalition's overall prospects in Anbar. On August 17th, Colonel Peter H. Devlin, the senior Marine intelligence officer in Anbar, produced a bleak assessment that declared the coalition and ISF were, quote, no longer capable of militarily defeating the insurgency in Al-Anbar, end quote. According to the report, the coalition had too few troops in Anbar to overcome the stalemate with the AQI-dominated insurgency there, with U.S. units mostly unable to establish sustainable security beyond the perimeters of their bases. In addition, Devlin concluded, both the central and local governments had collapsed in Anbar, leaving AQI to fill the vacuum and become the strongest political force in the province. In Devlin's judgment, it was a situation, quote, beyond repair, end quote. The report quickly was leaked to the American media, where it seemed to cast further doubt on the increasingly unpopular campaign in Iraq. McFarland noted, quote, Because Pete Devlin was sounding these cautionary notes up at the MEF headquarters, it was a little bit more difficult for me to convince my bosses to come down and embrace the shakes, end quote. He later said, quote, They were getting a lot of advice of, Be careful, your job is really to support the governor. It's not really to support these shakes. These shakes could go rogue on you. I had to overcome that. Those were valid concerns. I don't belittle them at all. But it did make it a little bit more challenging for me to try to make sure that the Marine leadership in Anbar understood that these guys, the Ramadi shakes, really can be trusted. End quote. For his part, Casey found the tone of Devlin's report and its widespread leak unwelcome and poorly timed. On September 2nd, Casey confronted Zilmer in Fallujah, expressing his disappointment in Devlin's, quote, defeatist, end quote, attitude. Warriors needed to have a more positive mindset, Casey told the Marine commander, adding that the MEF G2 should be looking for AQI vulnerabilities, rather than assuming the coalition could not win. The Anbar Awakening Page 611 the Founding of the Sahawa Just four days after Devlin's report concluding that Anbar permanently was lost, Sattar's tribal alliance, known as the Anbar Emergency Council, went to war with Al-Qaeda, just as the Anbar People's Committee had unsuccessfully done in January. On August 21st, AQI leaders Abu Bakr and Abu Uthman ordered an attack on the newly established Jazeera police station north of the Euphrates, an ISF outpost emplaced with the al-Burisha's support. The attack set off a gas explosion that badly injured six army soldiers and killed 11 of the 30 police stationed there. Rather than quit, as had often happened before, the Iraqi police, newly confident in their U.S. military support, insisted on keeping the police station open. On the same day, AQI fighters led by Rashid Abu Zayan, a militant who had been released from U.S. detention at Camp Bukha the previous day, assassinated the leader of the Albu Ali Jassim tribe, Sheikh Khalid Ali Albu Jassim. A former Iraqi general and local political leader, Khalid had at one point cooperated with AQI leaders, but he and his tribesmen had become AQI's enemies when they refused the terrorist group's demand to hand over their weapons. Rather than returning Khalid's body to his tribe for a proper Muslim burial, the AQI leaders left his decapitated corpse in the desert, 
forcing the Albu Ali Jassim tribesmen to search for several days for his remains. The brazen attack on the tribally connected police station and the desecration of Sheikh Khalid's body were a tipping point for the Anbar Emergency Council. Outraged sheikhs from the Albu Diab, Albu Asaf, Albu Ali Jassim, Albu Julib, and Albu Risha tribes gathered on August 31st to declare an anti-AQI front. On September 3rd, Dean reported to McFarland that the Anbar Emergency Council and its armed wing, the, quote, Anbar Revolutionaries, end quote, were ready to side with the coalition publicly. The Anbar Revolutionaries were a potent group, drawing their fighters from the local police, army officers, and local tribesmen, as well as from insurgent groups including Jaish al-Haq, the Numan Brigade, and Mohammed Mahmoud Latif's branch of the 1920 Revolutionary Brigades. Clearly recognizing this nascent threat, AQI leaders gathered at least 850 fighters in the Ramadi area by summer's end, including reinforcements from Beji. With the additional forces, AQI launched a series of attacks in September in an attempt to regain the initiative, leading to spurts of fierce fighting. During one of these engagements on September 27th, AQI fighters attempted to overrun a patrol from 1st Battalion 36th Infantry Regiment in Hit. When his company commander and 1st Sergeant were both hit, 2nd Lieutenant Walter Jackson rushed into the street to help them. Despite being grievously wounded twice, Jackson fought off the insurgents and recovered his commander, an act for which he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. Two days later in Ramadi, on its last mission before rotating home, a squad of SEALs performing overwatch for soldiers in the city's Malaab district came under intense fire. When insurgents threw a grenade among the SEALs, 25-year-old Master-at-Arms Second Class Michael Mansour, who had already earned a Silver Star earlier in the same deployment, immediately threw himself on the grenade, which killed him when it exploded. Saving his teammates with his sacrifice, Mansour was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. As battles raged across the city during September, McFarland became convinced that supporting tribal groups like the Anbar revolutionaries was the best solution for growing the local police who were essential for the city's security. When he reported these developments to the Marine Expeditionary Force, or MEF, headquarters, however, he was met with hesitation and skepticism. The Marine leaders had not discounted the potential for tribal negotiations, but were going about it in a different manner. Many of the lineal Anbari sheikhs, heirs by birthright to tribal lines of succession, had fled to Jordan during the 1990s or after the U.S. invasion. These lineal sheikhs, while technically still tribal chieftains, had been replaced on the ground by other members of their clans who had stayed behind. Dean and Patriquin met with the tribal power brokers who had remained in Iraq, while the marine leadership engaged the more detached tribal figureheads who were in Jordanian exile, creating a tension between two tribal outreach strategies that endured well into the following year. When Brigadier General David Reist, Zilmer's deputy and MNFW's lead for engagements, learned that 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division had been closely working with Sattar, he told Dean that many at MNFW considered the sheikh a criminal and that Dean should arrest him. Quote, I'm not arresting him. You arrest him. End quote. Dean had defiantly replied, and had been surprised not to receive a reprimand. 
On September 7th, coalition troops captured senior AQI leader Abu Bakr on his way to meet Abu Utman near Abu Ghraib, dealing the Ramadi AQI leadership a serious blow at a time when the tense relations between AQI and the tribes were coming to a head. Two days later, on September 9th, MacFarland met with Sattar and 20 other sheikhs for the first time, with Sattar presenting the group's 11-point platform for an Anbar, quote, awakening, end quote, or Sahawa in Arabic. The sheikhs proposed manning new police emergency response units, or ERU, with their tribesmen and declared that any further attacks against coalition troops would be considered assaults against the tribes as well. MacFarland immediately endorsed ten of the tribe's proposed points, but opposed one in which the tribal leaders demanded the removal of Governor Alwani and in which they implied they might use force to expel him. Cognizant of MNFW's heavy investment in Alwani, MacFarland pressed Sattar and the other sheikhs to abandon their opposition to the governor for the time being. With coalition endorsement of most of their awakening platform, on September 14th, Sattar and 40 other sheikhs issued an emergency council proclamation acknowledging their decision to work with the coalition against AQI in Anbar. The Anbar Emergency Council was the largest tribal organization the coalition had yet seen, consisting of 41 sheikhs from 17 Anbari tribes, including nine sheikhs from the powerful western Anbar al-Bumahal and al-Bunimer tribes. Meeting near the Jazeera police station north of Ramadi on the same day they issued their proclamation, the council members voted to name Sheikh Sattar as the rightful governor of Anbar province and proposed to seek Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's support for a plan to re-establish security in the province. In this step, the awakening had instantly become a rival provincial government, complete with its own alternate security structure. For the Ramadi sheikhs, Sattar was the province's legitimate leader, not Governor Alwani. The awakening had an immediate impact on the security situation. As the coalition and the Anbar revolutionaries stepped up their pressure on al-Qaeda's networks, the number of insurgent attacks declined sharply by 50% during September alone. As the Anbar revolutionaries and the Emergency Council began to have a serious effect on the battlefield, they received a significant political boost as well when Iraq's state-run television channel began to portray their campaign against AQI positively. The Tribes, Baghdad, and the Anbar Police As the Awakening Tribes came forward to form security units, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division worked to overcome bureaucratic obstacles to incorporating the tribesmen into Anbar's formal security structures. The Interior Ministry and MNFI centrally determined the number of police stations authorized in much of the country and had given Ramadi a cap of 11 stations. The tribes, eager to provide their men for the police force, recommended establishing police stations manned by tribesmen within their own tribal precincts, but MacFarland technically was prohibited from overseeing the hiring and pay of police who were not assigned to one of MNFI's already designated stations. To solve this bureaucratic conundrum, the brigade creatively established substations in the tribal areas, each connected to a sanctioned station and with tribesmen brought onto the rolls and paid as if they were assigned to one of the eleven approved stations. Employing local men to staff these stations quickly paid off. They had a stake in securing their home areas and were well-positioned to provide 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division intelligence about insurgent networks in them. 
In addition to the sanctioned police, scores of Anabari men stood ready to form the Anbar Emergency Council's proposed Emergency Response Units, or ERU. To gain approval in Baghdad for this new source of counterinsurgent manpower, McFarland briefed Casey on the ERU concept, while Sattar petitioned Interior Minister Jawad Balani for support for the ERUs. On October 8th, Balani authorized two ERUs for Sattar and an additional one for Habaniya. The influx of tribal police recruits exceeded all expectations. The tribes quickly became so depleted of men because they were at police training in Jordan that the sheikhs asked McFarland to pause recruiting in October until some of the recruits returned from training to guard the tribal areas. It was a good problem to have, McFarland noted, since it indicated the virtual flood of Anbaris now willing to serve. The awakening received yet another boost when, at Sattar's urging, Anbar revolutionary leader Brigadier General Hamid Hamad al-Shoka was appointed Anbar police chief. Under Shoka's direction, the Anbar revolutionaries allowed AQI fighters to surrender at the Jazeera police station, turn in their weapons, and not be targeted as long as they did not return to fighting. With the Interior Ministry's endorsement of Sattar's efforts and the installment of Shauka as police chief, control of Anbar's security forces was shifting into the hands of Sattar and the Sahawa. By October, the tribal movement also was becoming a political player, lobbying senior government officials in Baghdad for official recognition. For the Baghdad-based Iraqi Islamic Party, the awakening was a clear political threat one that needed to be co-opted or contained if the IIP was to retain its leadership of the Sunni political bloc. In response, Maliki, Vice President Tariq al-Hashimi, and Governor al-Wani attempted to form a competing tribal council of their own with IIP members. With the awakening IIP rivalry growing, on October 10th, MNFI facilitated a meeting between Sattar and Alwani that temporarily eased tensions, but the underlying political competition would remain a potential driver of instability. Nevertheless, despite the looming power struggle among the Sunni factions, the events of summer and fall 2006 had produced an astonishing turnaround in the state of the ISF in the province. Filling the ranks of the 1st and 7th Iraqi army divisions based in Anbar had been an uphill battle, given the reluctance of Sunni men to risk being deployed to another part of the country once they had enlisted. Anbaris also generally did not view the Iraqi army as theirs, considering it instead an extension of the Shia-led central government, which they still regarded with deep suspicion. Unique among the division-sized sectors, MNFW's greatest gains in security force development materialized in the Iraqi police, rather than in the army. The police in Anbar grew during Zilmer's tenure, from 2006 through early 2007, from about 2,000, most of whom were posted in Fallujah, to 8,500. Police recruitment escalated in October with the infusion of Ramadi's tribal levies and the rapid formation of the three battalion-sized ERUs Bolani had approved, but MNFW observed progress in recruitment in every city across the province. Such growth only occurred with the active support of Anbar's tribes. The Islamic State of Iraq as Sheikh Sattar's star ascended, al-Qaeda leaders sought to eliminate him as a threat. In early October, AQI commander Abu Ayyub al-Masri sent Sattar an ultimatum that he had one month to pledge support for AQI or he would be killed. 
On October 16th and 22nd, Vehicle-Borne Improvised Explosive Device, or VBIED, attacks struck near Sattar's home, apparently related to Masri's effort to murder Sattar and dismantle the Awakening. At the same time as these attacks against Sattar, AQI unveiled a new political initiative, the Islamic State of Iraq, which partly was an ideologically driven attempt to establish an Islamic emirate and partly a political response to the Sahawa. In September, Ayman al-Zawahiri instructed Masri to create the Islamic Emirate of Iraq, or Islamic State of Iraq, or ISI, and to prove it was an indigenous organization by appointing an Iraqi leader. Masri chose an unknown figure with the nom de guerre Abu Umar al-Baghdadi to lead the new state. Al-Qaeda senior leaders also ordered the new ISI to establish a central tribal council to rival the Sahawa and unite Sunni tribes loyal to AQI, an arrangement to which many tribes in Anbar and Mosul agreed because it came with a promise of financial and material support. To celebrate the creation of the ISI, more than 60 AQI fighters defiantly paraded through still-contested East Ramadi on October 18th, claiming the city as the capital of their new, quote, caliphate, end quote. Similar demonstrations spread across Anbar, giving AQI a morale boost when none of the celebrations in Ramadi, Haditha, Haklania, Bani Dahir, Rawa, or Rutba met with ISF or coalition resistance. The AQI-led celebratory parades indicated that the battle for Anbar continued. While McFarland had made significant progress by reclaiming parts of Ramadi block by block, East Ramadi remained contested territory with tribal influence limited and fragmented in its dense urban community neighborhoods. But the AQI-dominated eastern quarter of the city remained the only area of Ramadi left to be cleared, McFarland reported to Casey on October 25th. The rest of Ramadi had become calm enough that the brigade commander was able to take Casey on an uneventful hour-long patrol through the city streets to the government center, which had been the scene of intense AQI attacks earlier in the year. MacFarland felt close enough to what he viewed as the conclusion of his decisive operation that his units began the renovation of the government center area, a complex of more than 30 buildings almost completely destroyed after years of fighting. The Sahawa, the IIP, and MNFW As insurgent violence in Ramadi continued to drop, Hashimi and other IIP leaders in Baghdad grew more uncomfortable with the Ramadi sheikh's new role and the U.S. military's apparent endorsement of them. On October 30th, Hashimi and Alwani tried to persuade Casey that the Ramadi sheikhs should be folded into an, quote, Islamic Party Tribal Council, end quote, under Alwani's leadership, a proposal Sattar's group already had rejected. However, the MNFI commander would not allow tribal and provincial government disputes to stand in the way of what he saw as an imminent tipping point against AQI in Ramadi, or to slow the success in building a large police force in such short time. Instead, the general urged the IIP leaders to take full advantage of the tribe's willingness to fight extremists. Insisting on a centrally devised framework for arming and employing the tribes risked alienating them, Casey warned. As if to illustrate how the political ground was shifting, on the same day that Casey was quashing the IIP's plans, Sattar was meeting with Maliki to discuss how to equip the awakening. Two days later, on November 1st, 
Maliki and Casey met to discuss the tribal movement and its standoff with the unpopular provincial government, and the two leaders even briefly considered the option of holding an early provincial election in Anbar to seat a more legitimate provincial government. Though the election option would not materialize until 2009, Casey was determined to take advantage of what he perceived could be a decisive opening against AQI in Anbar. He had been unhappy with what he saw as MNFW's hesitancy to seize the opportunity and had opined in late September that Zilmer and his command should be taking bold steps, quote, more along the lines of Operation Say Aid, end quote, from the previous year. Large-scale activities, quote, focusing on major muscle movements, such as disrupting traffic across the border and controlling the lines of communication, end quote. As if to prod MNFW into this kind of approach, Casey requested that the U.S. Central Command commit its theater reserve, the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, to Anbar in order to, quote, go for the jugular, take risk, and to be decisive, end quote. In other words, to finish off AQI in western Iraq once and for all. Arriving in November, the MEU sent two companies to reinforce McFarland's work in Ramadi, while the remainder fought in Haditha to disrupt al-Qaeda's hub connecting the Euphrates River Valley with Beji in the north and Rutba in the west. Consistent with his view that Anbar had reached a tipping point, Casey believed the extra weight of the MEU would be decisive, and described the continued fighting in McFarland's sector as the, quote, final kinetic phase of operations in Ramadi, end quote. As he made these moves, the MNFI commander emphasized to Iraqi leaders such as Hashimi the importance of staying focused on al-Qaeda, rather than getting distracted by internal political disputes. He directed Zilmer to get involved in sorting out a compromise between Alwani and the tribes. From MNFW's perspective, however, the awakening still seemed like an unreliable secondary effort that could jeopardize the command's main engagement strategy with the larger Anbari tribe's exiled leaders in Jordan, men who retained considerable financial and moral heft. Zilmer hoped to persuade them to return home and use their authority to bolster security force recruitment and unite their tribes against al-Qaeda. No significant breakthroughs had come from this line of effort, however, and Satar's rise seemed to make such a breakthrough even less likely. Just as tension had developed between the tribes and the provincial government, similar resentment roiled Anbar's tribal order, where leaders perceived influence as a zero-sum game. As the Awakening's relationship with MacFarlane's brigade deepened and the Ramadi violence subsided, Satar's capacity for patronage expanded, and the Albu Risha eclipsed larger Anbari tribes such as the Albu Isa, Albu Nimer, and Albu Mahal, whose sheikhs chafed at the U.S. military's inadvertent reordering of the traditional tribal hierarchy. Skeptical of what MacFarlane's accommodation with Satar might ultimately gain and sensitive to what it could potentially cost, Zilmer nonetheless allowed it to continue, hoping the bottom-up approach that tapped into the awakening would help rather than hinder the top-down track of engagement with the lineal sheikhs in Jordan. In the hope of forging a connection between Alwani and the tribes, Zilmer instructed MacFarlane to engage the governor, but within the MEF, senior officers doubted whether these two feuding factions could be reconciled. Quote, the Sunni elite that once held sway over Al-Anbar has been reduced to an ineffectual potpourri of mutually antagonistic special interest groups, end quote, wrote Devlin, MNFW's chief intelligence officer, in another pessimistic report in November, 
seemingly written as though the sharp drop in violence and the explosion in tribal police volunteers had not happened. Slightly modified from his famously gloomy August assessment, Devlin's updated report acknowledged Al-Qaim and Ramadi as relative bright spots in an otherwise failed tribal system. Yet he expressed misgivings about their durability given the Iraqi government's persistent stinginess vis-a-vis the Sunni province and what Devlin considered the unreliability of tribal militias. The awakening, led by Sheikh Sattar, was a, quote, force to be reckoned with, end quote, Devlin conceded, but associated groups like the Anbar revolutionaries, quote, could become a power unto themselves, end quote. Seeing little coming from the besieged provincial government in the way of material assistance, McFarland ignored these MNFW warnings to avoid getting too close to Sattar, whom the Marine headquarters still considered untrustworthy. From the brigade commander's perspective, MNFW's warnings to avoid a rapprochement with Sattar and the tribes were akin to a lifeguard telling a drowning man to avoid a certain flotation device because it was not, quote, U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary approved, end quote. The Rescue of the East Ramadi Tribes McFarland's success in weakening AQI's grip on Ramadi, building local security forces, and gradually placing Iraqi forces in control of sections of the city continued throughout the fall. By November, the police force was growing rapidly. Most areas to the north and west of Ramadi had flipped against al-Qaeda, and even the disinclined Albu Alwan tribe in West Ramadi had joined the awakening. Still, most tribes east of the city remained neutral or uncooperative due to their intimidation by or alliances with AQI. Lieutenant Colonel Charles Ferry's 1st Battalion, 9th Infantry Regiment had recently taken control of East Ramadi from Lieutenant Colonel Ronald P. Clark's 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry Regiment, but it was no stranger to the area. It was a rare unit that returned to the same area of operations as its previous rotation, and in fact, it had been the battalion that had handed East Ramadi to Clark the previous year. Ferry's area extended east of the city and south of the Euphrates, where the river made several pronounced north-south bends known to the troops as the, quote, shark fins, end quote. As Ramadi became less hospitable to AQI, the shark fins, containing the areas of Sufia and Juleba, had become key terrain for the insurgents areas where AQI could continue to train new recruits and stage attacks east to Baghdad or west into Ramadi. The Sharkfins also were the only remaining locations from which AQI could fire mortars into Ramadi and on coalition locations with easy ingress and egress for insurgents along Route Michigan, the main supply route through Anbar. The westernmost Sharkfin in Ramadi's Sufia district was home of the Albu Soda tribe, led by Sheikh Jassim Muhammad. Sheikh Jassim had represented the Albu Soda at the September Sahawa Declaration, but had been reluctant to join the awakening fully, given AQI's heavy presence in his territory. He and his small tribe had managed to establish checkpoints to control AQI movement and moved to eliminate AQI's mortar-firing positions within their tribal area, but AQI had retaliated by killing Jassim's brother and two cousins and dumping their bodies into the Euphrates. In response, the outraged Albu Soda mounted raids against insurgent safe houses and delivered captured AQI fighters by boat across the Euphrates to the nearest police station, after which AQI leaders, intent on retaining their sanctuary, moved to eliminate the Albu Soda altogether. 
Considering the Albu Soda as one of the weakest elements of the burgeoning awakening, AQI commanders believed that if they and the local branch of Ansar al-Sunna could join forces to destroy the tribe, it might begin a domino effect that could topple the tribal movement. MacFarland and the 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division had planned a final push to wipe out AQI's remaining influence in eastern Ramadi, starting with the Malaab, the city's eastern urban area, before pushing farther east to seize the shark fins. But events on the ground changed this approach. On November 24th, AQI asked Sheikh Jassim to meet to negotiate the removal of his checkpoints. Nervous about being kidnapped, Jossum had notified Patrick Quinn of the impending meeting, and the American officer had presciently given Jossum a satellite phone to call for help in case the negotiations became troublesome. On November 26th, two days after Jossum's meeting with AQI, more than 100 AQI fighters attacked the Albu Soda tribal area, and the tribe frantically called Ferry's interpreter for coalition support. The newly arrived Ferry, unfamiliar with the Albu Soda's situation and unsure of Jossum's veracity, had already planned a battalion operation into the Malaab for the following day, an important effort that a detour to help the Albu Soda in the shark fins would disrupt. Learning of Jossum's position from Patrickwin, Ferry realized the developing tribal battle was one his unit had to support. Within an hour, Ferry and his men had scrapped their planned operation and began maneuvering their battalion to Sufia. The fight in the shark fins was not an orderly one. From his unmanned aerial vehicle, or UAV, feed, Ferry's unit was unable to distinguish AQI and Albu Soda fighters, so Patrickwin persuaded the Albu Soda men to wave towels so coalition troops could visually separate the tribesmen from the AQI fighters. Soon, airstrikes and artillery pounded AQI locations, destroying AQI trucks and fighters. As night fell on November 27th, Discerning an insurgent from a tribesman became increasingly difficult until Ferry convinced Jossim by phone to light a bonfire to mark the sheikh's forward line of troops. After reducing several AQI obstacles and destroying AQI vehicles that were attempting to drag Albu Soda fighters away as trophies, Ferry finally linked up with Jossim on the battlefield, and the tribe was out of danger. By Anbar standards, the battle had been a large one. The Albu Soda lost at least 55 tribesmen, while at least 68 insurgents were killed. Taking quick advantage of the victory, 1st Battalion, 9th Infantry Regiment established a new combat outpost in the Sufia Sharkfin, and after an additional brief fight near Fishhook Lake in December, the entire Sufia district was under U.S. and awakening control, isolating the remaining insurgents in East Ramadi. The Death of Captain Patrickwin Ferry's battalion would continue to fight significant AQI resistance throughout December and into the new year, finally controlling the second shark fin and establishing another combat outpost to control Juleba by January 25, 2007. The final clearance of East Ramadi, the Malaab, would have to wait for the arrival of 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's successor unit, Colonel John Charlton's 1st Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, in February. But, by any measure, the situation in eastern Anbar had already turned to the coalition's advantage to a degree that had been unimaginable half a year before. One of the architects of the historic turnaround, however, would not be present to see its completion. 
By December, Patriquin had become optimistic enough for Ramadi's prospects and the growing Sahawa that the articulate young officer had begun working closely with Marine Major Megan McClung, MNFW's chief of public affairs, to engage the many journalists now arriving in Ramadi to get a first-hand view of the awakening and its impact. On December 6th, after escorting Fox News's Oliver North and MSNBC's Sarah Childress around the city, Patriquin and McClung struck an IED that destroyed their HMMWV and killed them instantly. The loss was a difficult one for both MNFW and 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division. McClung was the first female Marine officer to be killed in Iraq, the first female graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy to have been killed in combat, and the most senior female officer to be killed in the war. It equally was devastating for the Awakening Sheikhs, who had grown so close to the ubiquitous Patriquin that they had dubbed him with the tribal name Hisham Abu Risha. When the American commands held a memorial service for the officers, scores of tribal sheikhs and Anbari security officers filed into the large hall, with the senior sheikhs taking their place in the first row next to MacFarland in a visual representation of the nascent Anbari American alliance Patriquin had helped to construct. Quote, no one is going to replace Patriquin. End quote, Sattar lamented. Eleven days after his death, Patriquin's outsized influence was felt as far away as Washington, D.C. Interviewed on Meet the Press, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich cited Patriquin's tribal strategy as an example of what Gingrich thought the United States should be doing to win the war. Gingrich described a clever stick-figure PowerPoint presentation the irreverent Patriquin had created entitled, quote, how to win in Iraq, end quote, to show the logic of tribal outreach. The PowerPoint and Patriquin's analysis went viral on the Internet. In subsequent years, Patriquin's instrumental role in bringing to the coalition side tribes that many had come to view as irreconcilable would lead some observers to compare him to T.E. Lawrence. Back in 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division, MacFarland reflected on the captain's impact on the war. Quote, when the history of this conflict is written, his contributions will loom very large, MacFarland eulogized, and I will personally do all I can to make sure he receives the credit and recognition that he deserves. He was the architect of one of the war's central, and perhaps the decisive, aspect. End quote. During 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's seven months in Ramadi, the brigade estimated it had killed 1,500 insurgents and detained another 1,500. MacFarlane's units had suffered 96 killed in action, while approximately 150 Iraqi soldiers and police had been killed. During those same seven months, the Iraqi police force in Ramadi had grown to close to 3,000 strong, occupying stations throughout the city and its tribal belts, and with Sattar's assistance, an additional 3,000-man ERU brigade also had been established as auxiliary police. Under the force of this new Sahawa-U.S. coalition, insurgent attacks had fallen by 70%, and Ramadi even had managed to hold its first mayoral election since 2004. These gains had not been achieved easily and had come despite a strategic trajectory in MNFI and the Iraqi government that was moving in a different direction. MNFI's campaign plan throughout 2006 remained focused on national elections, a reduction in coalition presence, and a steady security transition to Iraqi control. 
It also was focused upon national-level politics and top-down governance and reconciliation. The change in Anbar, however, had come from the bottom up, on both the coalition and the Iraqi sides. The levers of power in Anbar that turned the province against AQI had emerged from the Sunni tribal structure that had boycotted the national political process. They rose from the tactical grassroots level rather than the national one. From December 2005 to September 2006, the Anbari tribes and their allies had tried to establish a parallel provincial governing structure that they considered legitimate, and with the Sahawa, they finally had succeeded. This complex tribal system ultimately delivered dedicated police and local security forces that allowed provincial governance to take root. On the coalition side, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division's operations were an anomaly among MNFI's brigades because they amounted to a distributed small-unit urban presence at a time when MNFI pressed toward its goal of reducing U.S. bases to just 50 by the end of the year. Surprised in retrospect at the latitude he enjoyed in going against the strategic grain, McFarland attributed it to a, quote, joint dispensation, end quote. Had his brigade been under an army division, the colonel mused, he likely would have been subjected to greater scrutiny and thus more readily challenged by higher echelons that were pursuing different approaches. The awakening also made clear that the lines between insurgents, provincial and national governance, tribes, and security forces were not as distinct as coalition units typically assumed. One of the awakening's chief architects behind the scenes, Mohammed Mahmoud Latif, was himself a prominent insurgent leader, while many tribes intermittently supported or opposed the insurgency as the political winds shifted one way or another. Iraqi motivations were often quite localized, as tribes came under AQI enticement or threat to their personal safety and economic livelihood. Despite the coalition's focus on national unity and governance, local and tribal grievances more often than not were the dominant causes of violence against either insurgents or the coalition. The burgeoning awakening demonstrated that coalition units that could decipher these motivations could also exploit them, sometimes delivering results that were significant on a regional or national scale. For the moment, the 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division approach in Ramadi was an anomaly, but before long it would become the centerpiece of a new strategy that the U.S. President and other senior leaders were desperately seeking. End of Chapter 21, Part 2 Hope in Ramadi Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021